You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 100 of Wheel Bearings. It's amazing that we've gotten this far. Uh, I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. And I'm Rebecca Lindland. And uh, as last week, Rebecca is uh, still in India, and because of time zone uh, constraints uh, to make things easier on Dan. We're going to do the same kind of format we did last week where we'll spend some time uh, right now talking with uh, Rebecca and I talking and then later on uh, we'll bring in Dan uh, and Rebecca can get on with her day and uh, you know get into the last few days of her vacation. Yes, there's actually a 10 and a half hour time difference <laughs> between yeah. uh, where I am. I'm in Calcutta now. Last time I was in uh, Jalsama and uh, the 10 and a half hours, I'm not going to lie, that half hour throws me every time. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of like being in Newfoundland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know if you know, I, I grew up in Canada and, and Newfoundland has its own time zone, which is uh, even though Newfoundland is, you know, the, at the far eastern end of Canada on the Atlantic coast, its its time zone is actually 30 minutes past eastern standard time, which is like two time zones over, which is crazy. Yeah. Yes. I remember when I was growing up as a kid watching TV, you know, on Canadian TV stations, you know, the, when they give the promo for up, upcoming show, you know, coming up at nine o'clock eastern and 930 Newfoundland. <laughs> Wait a minute, they're like a thousand miles east of here. Anyway. That's crazy. Yeah. Yes. All right. So, um, why don't we start with you? Um, you were just telling me a little bit about the, the automotive situation in uh, in India. Yeah, it's it's been really fascinating here. I I've gone from the west coast in Mumbai. I traveled to the northern parts of India. Went to Jodhpur, uh, like where the pants, the riding pants, and then I mm-hmm. uh, and then through uh, to Calcutta now. And each city has had a really different flavor, uh, but the consistency in transportation is that Uber is incredibly popular here. There's still plenty of traditional taxis. There is some private ownership, uh, I should clarify from last week. It, it, It is, you know, it's, 
I still don't think it's prevalent, but I've been told by people that live here that it is. I'm like, okay, I believe you, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it, it probably <laughs> depends on which social group you're talking about. It it yeah. does. It, it very much does. I'm actually staying at a friend's uh, club, which is kind of like a country club. It actually, I'm I'm at uh, Talagunge. It's called, and it's the oldest uh, golf course in India. Uh, that was built uh, on the outskirts of Calcutta, but now, of course, is right in the heart of the city. And certainly members that uh, are chauffeured here have tend to have luxury vehicles, you know, private, privately owned luxury vehicles. Uh, but overall, you know, I've, there's very little public transportation. There are trams here, but they run uh, irregularly. I took the metro yesterday, which was cool. It was, uh, it was um, around lunchtime, so it wasn't particularly crowded. There is a, in the middle of each car is the women's section, which is actually really nice because then only women are surrounded by, you know, you're only surrounded by women. Uh, and so that was nice. But, uh, but the metro only runs north and south in the city. So if, as long as you're going north or south, which we were doing, you're good. <laughs> Otherwise, you're out of luck. Uh, and there's buses. They, so there's plenty of buses. The buses, though, do not come to a complete stop. So it's a running ingress <laughs> and a running egress. <laughs> so, so my friend who lives that here, be, that could be interesting, uh, right? And I've seen it, and I've seen it happen. And uh, so, my friend who lives here, her older mother, she doesn't ride the bus anymore because she can't get on and off fast enough. So that was fascinating. <laughs> um, but you know, the other thing I've noticed is the electric. Do they even do they at least slow down a little? They slow down. They slow down. Okay. But it's a crawl. You know, the the wheels don't stop. Right. So they're they're continuing to move, uh, even as you are trying to get get on and off. Uh, so it's mostly men that are on it, uh, which again is you know just a fascinating part of life here. Um, the other thing I noticed is that you know I was thinking about electric vehicles here because pollution, obviously, air quality is very poor um, on many, many days, and they still burn garbage, for instance. Calcutta has actually instituted things. Uh, there's no plastic bags that are allowed in Calcutta, so there, and there's a lot of reuse. I'm sorry, there's a lot of uh, bio, biodegradable use of, um, like, you get your tea, the chai, in handmade uh, pottery. It almost looks like something you'd plant like uh, your herbs in. Uh, it's and then five million of those are made every night because you drink your tea and then you break this little clay pot and it gets recycled and remade and it's fascinating. <laughs> so Cal so. Yes. So, so is this, you know, is this a, a clay pot that's been fired already? Yes. Or? Yep. It's a fire, handmade, fired clay pot. I'll send you a picture, and it's, uh, and it's they're 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 like the size of your palm, so it's small, and that's what you get yeah. your your tea in, and and then those are immediately thrown out because you can't really clean them, you can't sanitize them properly, so they're single use, but it, so it's single use clay cup and then the and then you throw them in the bin and they get crushed and recycled and remade 
and five million wow, of these are made. That's fascinating. Isn't that crazy? When she first told is, me, is that just in Calcutta or, or is that nationally? Um, I don't think it's nationally. Actually, that's that's probably Calcutta. I mean, you know, India has a population of one point three billion people. So yes, um, that that would probably that would make sense. You know, just for Calcutta. Just for Calcutta. It is absolutely, absolutely amazing. There's about 3,000 people that make these, and their work hour is 7 p.m. to, to basically 7 a.m., um, and then they're delivered to each of the shops. They use a lot of banana leaf plates. Uh, we used a banana leaf plate yesterday at a restaurant and a banana leaf bowl. And again, those are completely biodegradable. So the city is making very conscious efforts to recycle, reuse. It's absolutely fascinating. Even in my hotel room, I have three different bins, one for dry waste, one for wet waste, and then one for like kind of medical waste. And so like band-aids and things like that. So it's it's been just really, um, uh, Calcutta I think has is probably the one city that has a very different reputation outside than inside the city. Um, you know, so- yes. You you mentioned you know EVs. You know, yes. What's what's the electrical supply like? Oh, Is it consistent? Gosh. Is it reliable? <laughs> so I have I have made an effort to take pictures of some of the electrical systems in and around oh, the city. That good, huh? <laughs> and, it's it, it. I mean, it looks like a tangle of hair that I've never seen before. It, it is. It, it's incredible, and of course, a lot of it is pilfered. You borrow from your neighbor. You plug into here. You tap into there. You know, it's surprisingly fairly reliable. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think it was in uh, Jodhpur that we had a little bit of an inconsistency in our hotel, uh, even though we stayed in a nice, you know, it wasn't five star, but um, but it was a little inconsistent there um, in terms of supply. Uh, but otherwise, it's been pretty good. Um, Wi-Fi is also pretty good. Of course, I'm coming to you via Skype uh, and Audacity. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good, pretty consistent from that standpoint. But the idea that we're going to try and put, you know, significant electric vehicles on the road is just, I think that there's there's a lot of barriers to that. You know, when you think in the U.S., the, the electrical grid is questionable for the power loads. I, I, I mean, we're, you know, I think India is so far from that. Um, there's also continues to be a tremendous amount of bicycles, of, of uh, motorbikes that are used. And, you know, the family of three, four, five will be on a single bike. Um, you know, three guys will be on a motorbike going to work or transporting. And so, uh, you know, there continues to be a lot of doubling up. I mean, ride sharing is is alive and well here. The little autos, which are the three wheeled kind of electronic uh, or um, electrified, I'm sorry, um, motorized uh, tuk-tuk cars, those one person will get in and then you wait until more three or four more people show up, um, which takes about a minute to two minutes. And and then they show up and they're all kind of going in the same direction. And so ride sharing here is very much alive and well. And it's organic. It's not done via an app or anything. Uh, it's just 
as people are walking on the street, it, you I, I don't know if you really ask or you just kind of say, which direction are you heading? There's actually tuk-tuks that are going north and south uh, and east and west, I believe, as well. So, uh, you know, there's there's kind of designated directions based on the side of the street you're parked on. And so you take it as far as you need to go. But it's all very organic. So there's things that, you know, like you can't imagine that in Manhattan every once in a while, maybe you share a cab with somebody that you already know. But, you know, the idea that you're just going to hop in a vehicle and go as far as you need to is still very foreign to us. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you know, given that, you know, at the same time in a place like Manhattan, you know, people are more than willing to, to cram into a subway with strangers, Mm -hmm. but you know, they won't share, they won't share a ride. Um, I don't do you um, do you ever use you know like uh, Uber Pool or, or Lyft Line? Have you ever tried to use that in in Manhattan? Do you know if there's any if there's much use of of that in a place like Manhattan? You know, I I actually tried to use it in San Francisco, uh, and it failed miserably. And I ended up waiting almost ten minutes. And I was in a well-populated area, and I just said, forget it, and I just got my own Uber. So they do have it here as well, but um, pretty consistently when I've looked to see the time differences, it's about a 20 to 30-minute time difference or for arrival time if you try and go with other people with Uber pool. So I, th- I just don't think it's efficient yet. And, you know, that's one of the things that when we think about future mobility, I just, you know, we have to make sure that we're not just giving something a new name. So, you know, ride sharing is carpooling. It's carpooling. And, and, you know, I think we talked about this before. Right. We can't call it something else and expect people to respond differently unless we have some other significant change. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that I think I can't remember if it was Lyft or Uber, uh, one or, or perhaps both of them I know were trying in San Francisco, for example, was, you know, if you're. Uh, if you're willing to like walk a block or two, uh, you know, to catch a ride, right? You can actually get a lower, a cheaper fare, you right? Know, and you know, by in that way, you know, you make the overall you know ride shorter, you know, because the the driver doesn't have to you know go up you know up and down all kinds of different blocks, you know, to to pick you up at a specific location. If you can go closer to the kind of the main route that the driver is taking to catch the ride then, you know, it works out better for everybody. And I think, you know, I think everybody's experimenting with different models to try to figure out what's what's going to work. And, I, you know, I don't think there's one one single solution that's going to work ultimately for, for urban mobility. I think, you know, it's going to be a, this hodgepodge of a whole bunch of different things, you know, and, and you're going to you're going to have apps that give you the options and say, you know, you put in where you want to go and, you know, it'll give you a menu of, OK, you know, it's going to, you know, if you want to get there in 15 minutes, you got this one at this price. If you want to get there in 20 minutes, you get this at this price and so on. And I think, you know, that's that's kind of probably ultimately the way it's going to going to end up. Yes. And also, you know, I think about sort of this on demand world that we're in. We pay for that convenience of having your car sitting there and I think that we, we, when we look at these different types of mobility, 
we have to factor in human behavior. Are people willing to walk that extra block? You know, we saw with Ford's chariot experiment that it was a glorified bus and, you know, people didn't necessarily want to be what their perception of being inconvenienced. And, you know, so now chariot is defunct. Uh, And so I think, you know, we just we have to be cognizant of of this type of, um, you know, of change of behavior. How much does a does a a, a solution, if you will, or, or, or an opportunity, how much change in behavior does it require with Uber and Lyft? And by the way, Lyft is not in India at all. But so with Uber, uh, it doesn't really require you're, you know, you're, you're, you're using your phone, which people want to do. And the car comes to you, you get in and you don't have to pay cash. So it's actually more convenient. It's more secure. You have this feeling of security because people know where you are you can share your ride with uh, you know and let people know hey I'm in this car so there's multiple layers of security and convenience with minimal change in behavior and those kinds of solutions I think can be quite successful Uh, as again it's a little bit of an on-demand you do sometimes have to wait but the other factors that go into uh, using Uber outweigh that that little bit of inconvenience. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how things evolve over the next 10, 15, 20 years. You know, I think there's there's going to be a lot of failed experiments and, and, you know, there will probably be some things that work out. You know, so far the the one the one consistent thing among all these different services is that nobody's yet figured out how to actually make a profit on it. Yes. <laughs> which, uh, which, Details. You know, and, yeah, <laughs> until until they figure that one out, you know, uh, you know, eventually VCs are going to want to stop s- setting fire to, to mountains of money to fund these things. Um, yes. And then then they're going to have to figure out how to how to be self sustaining. But uh, in the meantime, you know, we'll we'll see a bunch of different tries and. You know, hopefully some of them will work out. Right. Well, that's one of the uh, one of the issues here in India is that when they first came in, Uber paid very, very well. And then they started cutting that as they've done in other places, to your point, to try and figure out how to make a profit from this. So there's some drivers, I think, that have, uh, you know, that have canceled or, or uh, aren't participating anymore, or they just have to drive so much more to in order to get the same, uh, the same pay. So the same amount, you know, of, of salary. So it's been it's it's been transitional here as well. And they've had some growing pains also here. But yeah, so that that how do you make a profit is still a question that remains. Yeah, well, and, and until that time, um, you know, and, and until until I can get reliable uh, service from from any of these operations uh, where I live, which uh, is is not really a, not really something that happens right now. The the few times when I've tried to use Lyft or Uber from my home, which is uh, you know in, in a residential area, you know, not really a suburb, but you know, kind of on the edge of town, um, it it's been problematic at best to actually get uh, 
to get a, a ride from from my location. <laughs> so until then, I'm going to keep driving cars like the the Genesis G70. Yes, <laughs> tell us, tell us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I had I had the G70 over the past week, and overall, I really liked it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had the 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 two liter turbo uh, rear wheel drive version, uh, automatic transmission. Um, you know, it's a it's based on the same platform as the Kia Stinger. Right. But it's a little bit shorter wheelbase, um, you know, which also means, you know, it's a tighter back seat. Um, it's, you know, it's more, you know, it's closer to uh, BMW 3 Series size. Um, you know, it's overall, I think it's it's a great platform. You know, the, the handling and the, the ride balance is really good. Um, you know, the 2-liter the turbo engine um, makes plenty of power, plenty of torque. Mm-hmm. Um the one thing I noticed, have you driven the G70? I have. I actually, I drove it in Korea a, a year and a half ago. So it wasn't the U.S. spec version of it. I haven't driven the U.S. spec version yet. Okay. Well, when I when I was driving it, what I noticed sometimes, you know, under moderate, you know, moderate to, to hard acceleration, the, the transmission seemed to have really hard abrupt shifts mm. and you know not not in the way where um you know like you know with a, with a high performance car with an automatic transmission where you know it's shifting fast uh you know and it's not that kind of uh abruptness but more um like there you know like there was something weird going on you know, it felt kind of jerky hmm. um you know there, there was like some let up and then all of a sudden you know, it would catch and go. And um, I'm not sure, you know, if it had something to do with the particularly cold weather that we had when I was driving it. Sure. I I doubt it. Um, But, you know, it it seemed to have some strange behavior from the transmission sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. And particularly, you know, if I was coming out of, you know, coming through a corner, you know, and then after, you know, getting past the, the apex, you know, accelerating out of the corner, you know, then it would, I'd sometimes get a weird shift, you know, right there, you know, get a downshift or, um, or, or even an upshift sometimes. And it was, it was kind of bizarre. Um, and so I, some of the I'm calibration a, is the calibration off a it, little, it could be, or it might've been just an issue with this particular car. Maybe there was something, a transmission issue with this particular car. Cause I don't remember, you know, none of the other people I've talked to driven the G70 have ever mentioned this. Hmm. And certainly the, the stinger that I drove, which has, uh, the same transmission in there did not exhibit this kind of behavior. Right. Um, but aside from that, you know, everything else about it was, was really nice. I mean, the interior was really beautifully turned out. Um, you know, not obviously not quite to the level of the Kia 900 I was driving the week before. Uh, you know, but that's also a significantly more, you know, that's, that's a, you know, further up the food chain, you know, more expensive car. Um, the, uh, but the, you know, the G70, I think, you know, had, had a really nice balance overall of, of performance uh, and, you know, the, the level of luxury that was in there. Um, one thing that I did note, you know, in terms of the interior, you know, and a lot of cars that are kind of in this class now, um, you know, they tend to have for the infotainment system, they'll have like a, a central control knob, you know, like an iDrive type right. controller. And the um, the Genesis the G seventy does not have that. I think the G eighty does, but the G seventy does not. It has you know it's using the more basic um, Hyundai infotainment system, which you know the 
the that system in and of itself, you know, I don't have any issues with. You know, the interface, you know, is is clean and easy to use, and you know, it's responsive. Um, but uh, you know, it's touchscreen only. Mm. Uh, so, you know, but it does have it does have rotary volume knobs and, and tuning knobs. So that's that's a good thing. And you know, the other controls, the climate controls, and everything are, you know, physical controls. So that's always a good thing. But um, yeah, overall, I I really liked it. You know, and you know at I think it was $45,000 was the one I had. Um, see, I yeah, so the one that, right so. Yeah, 44895 And that's uh, a good price. I mean, that's. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is with the dynamic package that, you know, has the bigger wheels and tires and right. bigger brakes. Um, and, uh, you know, some other, some other fun features on there as well. Yeah, so I drove the, the 3.3 liter V6 engine, and that was, um, I, and I also had all-wheel drive, so it was quite different from the one uh, that you drove. But when you talk about the infotainment system, one of the things I remember, this was in, in Seoul that I drove it back in September of, of um, 2017, so it's been a while now. Uh, but one of the things I remember is that the infotainment system, the navigation, actually told us when speed bumps were ahead because there's so oh, many, really? yes, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. Um, and so uh, this, the speed bumps, apparently, I, I said, why is this? And they said, Korea is the land of speed bumps. I'm like, okay, good to know. Uh, so it was very, very detailed. I mean, the navigation was literally down to the speed bumps. Um, and I'm trying to look through quickly to see if I had any issues with the transmission. I, again, this was a different engine. Um, I, you know, there was minimal turbo lag. Uh, and I, you know, I, I thought that the overall, I, uh, I didn't really have any particular comments. Um, you know, I said, I found, I remember finding the brakes were pretty grabby. They were very, very, uh, quick to, you know, it was, it was just touchy, I guess is, um, you know, but we were also in in traffic going back and forth, and it was just a constant thing until we got out onto the roads. But um, overall, you know, I, I definitely found, as you did, that the car was really, really well-equipped, really nice to drive, uh, and the interior was well done as also. So uh, I think, and, and the price point, again, I think that what you drove is terrific. Yeah, uh, and... I think the the base price, you know, starts. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's around. Uh, yeah, it's about thirty five thousand for the two liter rear wheel drive, <clears throat> which, you know, is. I mean, that's a that's a great package, and you know, with the the the, uh, the elite package and the prestige and the dynamic that were on this, it, it added about ten thousand to the bottom line. But you know, you compare that to a three series or a Mercedes C Class, and you know, or or uh, an Audi A four. And you know this is this is very competitive, and you know it's I think it's it's definitely a car that um, that you know overall deserved to win the uh, car of the year this year, the North American car of the year. Right, exactly. You know, keep in mind too that Genesis has made some really strategic hirings in terms of uh, you know picking people from the from the Germans, both in the, on the design side and on the engineering side. You know, they're 
the head of engineering for them is the is Albert Byerman, who came from BMW and you know from specifically from BMW M. And so they've really mm. been uh, you know working hard to get specific people in uh, to you know to really tune and style these vehicles. But I do think that, you know, taking on the Germans is always really hard from a marketing standpoint. And so I think they've also, Genesis as a brand, uh, is doing a good job of building their prestige because I think they can be a standalone prestige brand. Don't try and, you know, and and say to a, a current BMW owner, move to a Genesis. I think that that's a harder thing to do. Yeah, and I don't think that they are doing that. You right. Know, I think that they're they're trying to create their own brand image. You right. Know? I mean, it's not, they're not, you know, certainly, you know, they haven't tried to copy the Germans in terms of design. You know, you know, if you remember back, you know, in the early 90s when Lexus and Infiniti first launched, you know, Lexus, you know, <laughs> looked, you know, their cars looked like, like Mercedes and Infinities looked like BMWs. You know, and it took a while for them to to find their own voice. And you know, I think um, you know Hyundai's done a, a good job with Genesis. You know, from a design perspective, giving it its own voice. You know, and uh, you know, really executing well on the the mechanical stuff. You know, making everything work and just executing well overall on this thing. Right, I I agree, and you know, let's not make the mistake that Cadillac has done by just continuously emphasizing. This is as good as Germans. Just just make a great Korean luxury vehicle, and I think they'll continue to do well. Yeah, I mean, so far, you know, as a brand, you know, up up until the launch of the G70, um, you know, Genesis has struggled a little bit with sales. You know, and then, you know, partially because you know they only had the two models, the G80 and the G90, both sedans. Yes. You know, and you know they're finally, I think, later this year. Uh, or yeah, I think this year, sometime this year, they're going to finally launch their first crossovers, right? Um, at, you know, and expand the brand that way. And I think, you know, between the G70 and you know, adding some utility vehicles to the lineup, I think that's that's going to help get the really get the brand established. I agree. I think, and that'll be terrific for them. And and I, you know, it's a it's a it's a brand filled with uh, you know, the people behind the brand are really quality people, uh, and I I just. You know, I, I'd love to see them succeed. You know, Korean luxury is something that's really big. Certainly, we're seeing it uh, on the health and beauty side, the fashion side, uh, and so it makes sense that you know we see a Korean luxury brand. K-pop and K-dramas. K-pop, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so no, I hope that they continue to do well. And I think, as you say, I think that uh, the SUV will certainly help a lot uh, in their uh, in their success. So more power yeah. to them. <laughs> All right. Let's let's talk about uh, what's been going on in Switzerland the last couple of days. Yes. The Geneva uh, Motor Show. The, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, even though, you know, there's some some manufacturers that, uh, as with many auto shows these days, you know, decided to skip Geneva again this year. Um, there was there was a lot of interesting stuff that came out. Um, and uh, what do you want to start with? So um, there's there's a couple. I think uh, you know it's Geneva tends to uh, appeal to such a wide range of 
consumers. So we've seen a really exciting smaller SUV from Alfa Romeo, the Tonali, uh, which is smaller than the Stelvio, which I talked about on the show earlier. And I love this size of, of SUV. It's kind of um, competing in that X2, kind of uh, the BMW X2 range, uh, or the Audi Q3, or as uh, some European manuf- uh, European uh, periodicals reported on the Mazda CX-3, which I thought was kind of yeah. you know, uh, funny because we wouldn't really think about Alpha and Mazda in the same breath in the U.S., but uh, overseas, it's a common thing. So I love the Tonali. I think it's terrific. Yeah, and this thing's you know coming out. It's going to be in production uh, next year, I think. Yes. Uh, so you know they showed it. They showed it in concept form, but I think the production version is going to be pretty close to what we saw this week. And you know to you know in terms of its size, you know this 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 vehicle is built on the same platform as the Jeep Renegade and the Fiat 500X. And uh, a lot of I know a lot of people don't really like the Renegade. Mm. Um, you know, and certainly at the Renegades. Ride quality leaves something to be desired in a lot of conditions, um, but you know I think I, I I was actually quite fond of the 500X yes. uh, when I drove it, and it's it's actually my preferred. You know if if you don't need an off road mini utility vehicle, um, you know that I mean the, the the Renegade you know you can get it as a trail hawk and you know do some serious off roading with it. Right. But if you don't need that capability, I I actually prefer the Fiat. Um, which is, you know, I think it's a better looking vehicle and, and generally um, better executed in a lot of ways. And then the, the Tenali really kind of takes that up a whole nother level, you know, with, with Alfa Romeo's design language and, you know, based on what they've done with this concept, you know, I think, I think it looks fabulous. It's gorgeous. I mean, you really, you really almost can't tell the difference in pictures between the Stelvio and the Tonali, which is really fun. You know, that's kind of what you want. It's, it's this, you know, pint sized version of a gorgeous vehicle. Uh, on the um, Auto Express UK site, uh, the Tonali has absolutely run away with um, the favorite, the latest poll for um, the, you know, their pick of Geneva. It's uh, 28% of consumers said that the, of the people taking the poll said this was their favorite vehicle. And the next one was the Volvo Polestar 2 at 18%. So this has clearly run away uh, with the, you know, for, for on the consumer side of things with the show. And I think it's, it's going to do really well in the States. It, it's a great vehicle to get women into the Alpha brand as well. Uh, you know, I remember as I, I you know, love the Stelvio at the same time, Arguably, it could be a little bit big for a single person like myself. Um, and also the price point, of course, is, you know, I don't drive that much because I'm always driving something else. Uh, but, you know, I love the price point, that I, I, anticipating the price point of the Tonali mm. and the size. I just think the size is really, really fun. So I love this car. I think it's going to do really well for them in the States. The other one that Alpha um, was showing, I believe, purely in concept was the Me Too S uh, M I T O Me Too? Is that right? SUV. Yeah. Did you see yeah, pictures was, of that? 
I did not see that one. So, so this now, I don't. I mean, I, I remember the original Me Too. Yes. So now, which was you know, there, there it was. I think it was based on the five hundred. Right. So now they're saying, first of all, I don't know how if Me Too is going to resonate in the states because of the Me Too movement. So that could be yeah. a little bit of an issue. But um, they've actually now morphed this into a B size segment crossover. They call it a crossover SUV. It's ridiculous. It's not. It's no more of a crossover SUV than the Chevy Bolt is, but it's adorable and it's again designed to appeal more to women. So I don't I I would be very surprised if this comes to the states, but it it caught my eye because of the ridiculousness of cost of of calling this an SUV. It's like, this is a hatchback. <laughs> Let's just call it a hatchback. But it's really cute. I mean, it's adorable. Uh, but it is very, very interesting to think about, uh, you know, morphing some of these. I, yeah, I don't I don't think that, is this, are you referring to the, uh, the, the Auto Express story? Yes. Okay, yeah, I don't think they actually showed this. I think this is just something that, that Auto Express was speculating on. Oh, okay, because it. Yeah. I. Uh, because they were talking to Roberta Zerbe, uh, that ta- and she was talking about pulling more women in, and right. uh, and so she says a five door is more appropriate. So she's actually addressed the fact that it's moving from a three door to a five door, uh, right. but it could be speculation. But I, I also just. Um, I, I, and she says also that the Tonali isn't due until late 2020. Uh, so this, this smaller one wouldn't come out till 2022 or so. But I do just wish we would get away from the idea that this is a crossover or an SUV. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, you know, call it whatever you want. You know, people seem to, you know, want crossovers even if they aren't. Or they want the idea of a crossover. And if you call something a crossover, they, it seems like they might be more willing to buy it, even though it really isn't one. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> yeah, who knows? But, yeah, the, the other interesting thing about the Tenali um, is its powertrain. You know, it's got uh, it's a new uh, plug-in hybrid powertrain. Yes. Uh, that's new for Fiat Chrysler. And um, variations of this same powertrain are also going to be added to the uh, – to the 500X and the Renegade next year. And it's it's similar, it sounds like it's similar in concept to uh, what we have, or what um, Volvo does in their current plug-in hybrids, where you know it's a base front-wheel drive platform, and then you have an electric motor at the rear axle uh, to provide you know, electric all-wheel drive on demand uh, and you know, more power and torque. Um, so, you know, the, the electric, in this case, it's using uh, a new 1.3 liter turbo four cylinder um, that's, that's new for FCA, uh, which is apparently 180 horsepower uh, in this version. And then with the electric motor, you've got a total of 240 horsepower available, which, uh, you know, in a, in a small crossover of this size, you know, that's... <laughs> That's actually that's pretty good. That yeah, you know, that could be a really fun little vehicle to drive. That that sounds like all sorts of fun. And it's also a good strategy to get FCA into the electric vehicle space where, you know, which of course the late great Sergio Marchione really didn't want to play in because they lose so much money on every car. So, I think this is a good way to get them uh, to play in that area that they have to move into at some point in time. So, it'll be very I, I can't wait for this thing to come out. I think it'll be tons of fun. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so speaking of electrification, um, you know, there's, there's actually a story that we've had in the rundown. Uh, I put it on the rundown a few weeks ago, and we, we ran out of time and never got to it, <clears throat> which was, uh, it was an article from Autocar, which talked about uh, a return to coach building, you know, which is something that you know, was very common in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, you know, with the way vehicles were built then, you know, especially premium, um, you know, luxury vehicles back in those days, you know, everything was on a body on frame at that time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, brands like, uh, Bugatti and, and, um, um, uh, Duesenberg and Auburn, you know, all these, these classic high end brands and even, you know, Lincoln and Cadillac, um, they would sell their rolling chassis you know, to customers, you know, customers would go to a, go to a Lincoln dealer and they would basically just buy a rolling chassis and then have it <laughs> shipped to a coach builder to build a custom body on that. Mm. So, you know, you would, you would have, you know, uh, Duesenbergs, you know, with, you know, a, you know, a dozen Duesenbergs all with the same chassis and powertrain, but completely different bodies on them. And, you know, the same went for a lot of the other, classic uh, luxury brands of the early 20th century. And that kind of faded away over time, uh, you know, particularly after the, the 1930s. You know, it still happened on occasion. You know, you'd have people like uh, Jim Glickenhaus, you know, who were fabulously wealthy and, you know, they could afford to go to Pininfarina and give him an Enzo and say, you know, create something unique for me. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it's not something that happened a lot, especially as we've gone to more unibody platforms over the last 50 years. Uh, it made it a lot harder to do that. But now with um, everybody moving towards electrification and everybody adopting these skateboard style chassis where you, know, you basically have a, a giant battery pack in the middle of the car and you bolt suspension to the front and rear and, you know, and motors, electric motors on there, you know, you, you're kind of back to what we had in those early days of you know, a rolling chassis you know with an engine and, and powertrain and everything in there uh but with but it's all electric now and you know volkswagen at the, at geneva this week they announced that their meb platform which is going to be going into production later this year uh with uh, uh, the id hatchback and then it's going to spawn a whole slew of models from brands across the vw group including the the q4 audi q4 e-tron that they also showed uh, and a Seat hatchback that they that they also showed this week, um, you know, they're going to make that MEB platform available to anybody that wants to use it. You know, for low volume production, you know, to to put their own body designs on there and you know do different applications with it, which is really cool. Um, you know, because it it's going to give us this amazing opportunity to see, perhaps see some really interesting low volume vehicles. You know that are nonetheless, you know, well-engineered from a mechanical standpoint. And, you know, it'll, at the same time, it'll give Volkswagen the opportunity to scale up their volume, to get more scale of, of the hardware they're building and hopefully drive their costs down. Well, and economies of scale is kind of the holy grail of doing electric electrification and, and doing smaller runs of these vehicles and so it's a fantastic way of of getting the the economies of scale that they need for 
these niche vehicles that consumers are wanting. So, yeah, I think it's it's really, really a fascinating opportunity to do some customization, do smaller batches uh, and and yet not break the bank. Yeah, and one of the first examples we saw of that this week, you know, is the VW buggy. Yeah, you know they they, they <laughs> built a, a modern iteration of the classic Volkswagen powered dune buggy. You know, back back in the I guess when was it in the six, early sixties or was it even the fifties when the first ones were built? Yeah, I think it was the sixties, and and all I looked at it and thought, where are my Ken and Barbie dolls? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very much like that. Uh, you know, so. You know, you've got this classic dune buggy design, uh, you know, which was built you know, originally built on you know the Beetle platform, and but now you know it's on this MEB electric platform. And the thing about one of the things about the MEB platform is, um, like you know, like Tesla's Model Three and, and S and X platforms, and um, the BMW i3, because you've got this you know the uh, the, prim- the primary motor is so small and light. They're they're going back from front wheel drive to doing rear wheel drive as the base setup for that, and then they're they're also going to offer all wheel drive as an option, you know, with an extra second motor at the front axle. But you know, now because you don't have to package you know a much larger engine in there, they're they're doing rear wheel drive because you've got the better driving dynamics from that. You're splitting up the the workload between the front wheels doing the steering and the rear wheels doing the propulsion, and so it, it, there's all kinds of fascinating potential out of all this besides the fact that it's just that playfulness uh that i think volkswagen really needs you know they've had a rough go a couple of years ago and i think that people are excited self-inflicted self-inflicted uh you know but people are excited it's a brand that you know pretty consistently a consumer uh they they want they want volkswagen to succeed in the u.s this is a brand that you know, hasn't had particularly high volume, but people come back to it. And especially Gen X, you know, we love this brand. And so I think this is just a great, great opportunity to just have loads of fun, loads of fun in, in a Volkswagen, which is, uh, you know, something that we've um, we've wanted for, you know, for a very long time. So uh, I think it's great. I think that the first ones came out in the mid 60s. So um, that was a uh, before my time, just before my time, but certainly by 1970, I was playing with my Barbie dolls. <laughs> <laughs> so I want a pink right. one. I want a pink one right away. <laughs> yeah. So uh, electrification was all the rage uh, in uh, in Geneva this week, um, and you know we we saw electric vehicles at both extremes of the automotive landscape. You know, so we had the. And and then everything in between, like that buggy, you know, at the at the low end, you know, we had the the Honda E prototype, um, you know, which is the production essentially the production version of a concept. I think I think it was the, the original concept was the Urban E a couple of a couple of right. years ago, um, you know, which kind of was from a design perspective was kind of a throwback to the old um, you know Honda 600s of the of the late 60s and early 70s. Um, what do you think about this one? Well, again, I think that we're seeing, uh, you know, we've got to have opportunities at all levels for EVs. And so I think that, you know, Honda coming in with this kind of urban concept, it's just it's something that 
that the market needs. We have to build these small cars, not necessarily for the U.S., but for the rest of the world. And that's something that we always have to keep in mind. Uh, you know, this thing is is tiny. Uh, it's even more compact than an I-3 uh, for perspective. And so I think that we we need this type of vehicle. We need this kind of low-cost a small product that I think will hopefully do well in other parts of the world, not necessarily in the U.S. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and you know, as as an urban EV, I mean, you know, this is not this is not something that's necessarily designed, you know, for long autobahn drives. Right. I mean, it's actually something that's not even going to be sold here in in North America. Um, it's I think it's going to be Europe and Japan only. Uh, is the plan right now. Uh, it only has a 120 mile range, but for something to drive around town, you know, I think that's, I think it'll be a great option. Yes, I think so too. I think it's, again, we, we're going to, we're going to continue to see EVs uh, at, across the board in, in all shapes and sizes and all price points and to some extent, all ranges as well. I, I, you know, that 120 uh, mile range is tough. I, it, you know, it, it's, consumers are it's not the comfort zone of consumers but i uh, it doesn't mean that they can't adapt to that that they're you know they're going they're not going to again it it depends is this better than their current solution so you know if this urban ev is better than what they currently have whether it's a it's their own personal gas engine or petrol engine uh, or relying on public transportation ubers and taxis then if people perceive this as being better than that then they're going to go for it otherwise you know we could see it struggle yeah and and i think that's part of why they're focusing it on the european market where I think you know the in on average Europe you know the, the average number of miles driven annually is lower. I think it's about uh, about ten thousand as opposed to closer to fifteen here in the U.S. Sure. Um, and you know I think you know for intercity travel you know there's a lot more options there um, you know that don't necessarily involve driving. I mean, you've got high speed rail there you know to go almost anywhere on the continent uh, you know as an, you know in addition to you know flying. Uh, which, you know, a lot of people also do. Um, but I think, you know, a, a vehicle like this, you know, for your driving around town, I, I think is potentially a great option for that market. Per, not, not so much here, obviously, but, but certainly in Europe where people are used to driving smaller vehicles. Right, absolutely. So, so at, at the opposite extreme of, <laughs> of EVs in Geneva, you know, um, we've got um, the, uh, the Pininfarina Batista, uh, and the Aston Martin Lagonda all-terrain concept. Yes. I, so Aston Martin absolutely killed it at Geneva. I mean, they just, they. I think they really surprised people with this. The Lagonda name, uh, the Lagonda brand is going to be Aston Martin's electric vehicle brand. So that's what they've come out with. They've established that. Uh, and this, uh, this SUV is just, I mean, it's a, it's a, I don't know the exact size of it, but it's fairly large. I love the fact that it is an SUV. Uh, the DBX, the Aston Martin DBX will come out before this, but then they'll come out with this. They'll have the Lagonda all-terrain concept, which I think looks great. It's it's an interesting uh, 
interesting play on you know the Aston Martin beauty styling, which is incredibly important to the brand, um, and it really was just a, a, a show stunner. I, I I really miss Geneva. I love that show, and I would have loved to have seen some of these uh, concepts in person. Uh, so I can't wait for hopefully some of this stuff will be in New York uh, at the end of a- middle of April. But I think this Lagonda it looks just absolutely gorgeous and. You know, the thing with the electric vehicles is that it's very much of an early adopter technology. And so going luxury first, I think, is really is a very, very appropriate. It's, you know, we've mentioned this before. It's one of the things that I wish GM had, had gone with their original gut of, of making Cadillac um, more of their electric vehicle brand. They're doing it now, but it's 10 years later. But they should have done it a long time ago. They should have done it yeah. immediately. You know, I remember anecdotally talking to people about electric vehicles and you know they said look I work all day in Manhattan I don't want to come home to a Chevy you know they wanted to come home to a luxury vehicle and you know that's their mindset so I think that Aston Martin reviving the Lagonda brand as an electric vehicle brand is something that is um, very strategically clever because this brand isn't particularly well known and so Let's you know get it off to a strong start as and very clear and definitive what this is, and it's one of the things that Genesis has struggled a little bit with, you know, in their launch where they first it was the Genesis nameplate, and then it became a brand, and then they've kind of had some stuttering with with the launch of Genesis as a luxury brand, and so I think that Aston Martin has done a good job of saying this is our the Lagonda is our electric vehicle brand. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, you know, from a design perspective, you know, this thing, as you said, is, you know, is just stunning. It is. Um, and especially especially when you compare it to, you know, I was in Geneva 10 years ago, 2009, when they showed their first, when Aston Martin showed their first SUV concept and called it a Lagonda. You know, the 2009 Lagonda SUV concept was not a good design. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember everybody, everybody who saw that thing thought it was just hideous. And, you know, fortunately, (laughs) it, you know, it died on the vine and and never, never got, never got close to production. Uh, But this new one, you know, this is, you know, like a, you know, an incredibly sleek, you know, tall sport wagon, you know, more of a a shooting brake kind of design, you know, kind of a a slightly high riding shooting brake, you know, rather than, you know, traditional SUV, uh, which, you know, especially in, in the luxury market, you know, is kind of the direction a lot of companies are going. Um, and you know, with the, uh, with the, you know, the, the EV platform with the battery under the floor, you know, it gives you a nice spacious interior. Um, and you know, the way it's all been executed is just phenomenal. And I, I think that this is, this has the, some really huge potential, uh, for really establishing the Lagonda brand again. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Now, you know, Aston Martin is very concerned and very caught up right now in Brexit and what happens with Brexit. So that's a whole nother issue that they're dealing with. But I think they absolutely uh, killed it at Geneva. They also showed the Vanquish Vision concept, uh, which will rival the McLaren. And that, again, is absolutely stunning. And then they also showed the Aston Martin 003 hypercar. Uh, and, yeah. and so, you know, they just I mean, it was just one after the other that they were 
rolled out. And so, and each one and, was and the production version of the Valkyrie. Yes. And the production version of the Valkyrie as well. So, uh, this was definitely Aston Martin's show from a luxury standpoint. No doubt. All right, let's finish it up with, uh, with the Batista. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Batista. I haven't seen the Batista. You're throwing me off oh, here. Wait a okay. minute. <laughs> which All one, right. which one is the Batista? Uh, the Pininfarina Batista. Oh. It's a 1900 horsepower oh, yes. uh, uh, electric supercar. Yes. Well, you know, 1900 horsepower. Sure. <laughs> why not? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, why, why not just go for 2000? Exactly. You know? But, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the thing the thing about this one, you know, I guess they're going to produce a limited number of them. Um, but uh, what's, you know. This, you know, this is the classic, you know, Pininfarina, gorgeous, you know, Italian design. Yes. Yeah, I think um, it, it's not it's not totally original in its design. I think, you know, I, when I first saw it, you know, I saw a lot of, you know, Ferrari 458, 488 in this one. Yeah. And looking um, at the pictures, yeah. But, you know, it's still good. It's still it still is. It's beautiful. I see a little bit of the Acura NSX in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the front is I, I can't say that I love the front it's very shark like which is to both the headlamps are really small uh, so it's a little harsh I think from the front um, the interior looks spectacular <laughs> um, I like the side view a little bit more I think from like the front quarter panel uh, but you know I mean it's just an it's it's a ridiculous I mean these cars are so they're they're almost cartoonish like i think they i think they always and they probably the original the you know the mid-level sketches are probably close to cartoonish and then they always try and kind of pull it back towards elegant uh and and this is this is uh again i'd love to see it in person i'd love to wash this car to be able to feel it you know hand wash (laughs) it because that's when you really start to feel all the dips and curves and lines and such of a car um I mean, it, it's kind of crazy, but <laughs> I would well, kick it out of my driveway. They're planning though. to make 150 of them at, at 2.6 million dollars a piece, and they will sell every one. Probably, yeah. And you know, we also can't get out of from talking about the Bugatti La Voiture Noire, the most expensive new car ever sold, of which there was you one. Mean the black car. The black. <laughs> yes, the black car. <laughs> yes, which is, which is the literal translation of, it is. of what you just yes. said. Yes, la la voiture noire. Yes, I, yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Come on, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> I I got to drive the Bugatti Chiron, uh, which was both the most exciting and terrifying hour of my life and the funny thing is it was in Greenwich where I live so kind of driving it on some streets that I knew a little bit and desperately trying not to get a speeding ticket was a a balance Uh, but you know this is something that is you know it it was 12.5 million I don't know if that's what it actually sold if that's what somebody actually paid for it but you know, for this for this new one yeah for the the uh it says, the it says black 19 car. here in this article i'm looking <laughs> oh, at oh okay yeah all right so i think it, i I, th- I knew it had sold for more than that um you know i first of all i'm dying to know who actually 
bought it. Um, but I, I think it's it's just something that is so. <laughs> what I love about this car is that it it reminds us all of what the passion and beauty that can be in the industry, even as we move to this mobility as a service kind of, you know, pedantic sort of practicality. Um, this Bugatti, I think just kind of reminds us of that. There's still so much passion in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for, you know, for, for those that can afford something like this, you know, to, to be able to, you know, get, you know, virtually anything, you know, to have something completely custom, you know, and I think, you know, that that's where I think, you know, the going back to where we started, you know, with the, you know, the coach building thing, you know, I think that there's, there's some amazing opportunities going forward, you know, because of the, the way, you know, the vehicle architecture is changing, you know, with electrification, you know, to do some really wild things, you know, at a much lower price point, you know, something that's much more attainable mm. for, you know, for, you know, the average person, uh, you know, I think, you know, you know, companies will be able to come up with some really neat ideas, you know, and build them on this kind of, you know, modern architecture, um, and offer them, you know, at something that, you know, can be attained by, you know, you know, by the average person as opposed to just, you know, the the insanely super wealthy that can afford a $19 million car. Yeah. And you know what? You make a good point also about this attainability when we think about uh, the decline of personal ownership, of personal vehicle ownership. I, you know, as if, you know, the people that are processizing this come true, that vehicle ownership is going to change dramatically in the next even 10 years, we will still want, you know, some people will still, it won't be practical for people to not have a car, like in your situation, even, you know, where Uber, Lyft, ride sharing, ride hailing, all these things are not practical. I, we will still need to have vehicles available at, at a reasonable price. And while we may not sell 90 million new cars around the world as we do today, uh, you know, if that number drops to 45 million uh, and then the rest of them are, are fleet, you know, very kind of generic vehicles, um, I think that we, we do need avenues of opportunity for personal vehicle ownership at an affordable price. And that coach building may, may really uh, be a throwback, but maybe something that is, is viable uh, going forward to try and, and keep personal ownership alive. I totally agree with you there. And I certainly hope that's the way it turns out. And on that thought, I'm going to let you get back to your vacation. <laughs> thank you. And uh, thank you so much for, for, dialing in from from uh, calcutta tonight uh, or this morning in your case yes and uh we'll talk to you next week yes when i'm back in the states <laughs> all right thanks. have a good trip home thanks so much sam all right and welcome back to the second half of episode 100 of wheel bearings uh rebecca has gone on to uh spend another day in calcutta and uh now dan has taken her place dan what's going on man <laughs> I'm not an Indian. No. 
I'm in the, you know, and as crowded as Boston seems sometimes, I'm sure the traffic is actually quite manageable. <laughs> yeah, I think I think compared to what I've seen of, of India, I, I would say that is absolutely true. And and when you get a chance to listen to what Rebecca had to say about, uh, you know, like, for example, buses in Calcutta don't actually come to a full stop. They just kind of slow down and you hop on and hop off as it's kind of. You know, right. cruising along and then uh, and then moves on to the next stop. So it's well, and I think part, but like the hop on, hop off means like actually hop on, like sometimes on the top of the bus. So that in some cases that back. is true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's it's a fascinating, uh, enormous country. And I was I was thinking yesterday uh, I, because I was listening to Marketplace and and they were having a, a, a discussion about how. In India, there's a very large potential labor force, but there's not as many jobs, and they're they're a young labor force. And um, it seems like you could, if you wanted to commit to trying to make India a center of low-cost manufacturing, that it would be a great place to do it. Uh, You'd probably have a lot of work to do, but they could sort of rival China in a way, where China seems to be getting to a point where they're not the low cost center that they once were. Yeah, so. I mean it's like every developing market, you know, as as the as the economy develops and, you know, people start to earn some money and get some spending power, you know, it 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 eventually starts to lift everybody up. I mean, you know, we've saw the same thing happen in Japan, we saw it happen in Taiwan, and then more recently we saw it happen in in Korea and South Korea. Um, you know, where as the market develops, you know, then the the workers, you know, start Demand, demanding more, you know, higher pay, and and that gives them more spending power, and and the whole economy grows, and you know we're seeing that starting to happen in China, and and you know as a result, you know a lot of the the Chinese manufacturers that build most of the stuff that we buy right now, you know, are desperately trying, like Foxconn, for example, it builds most of Apple's stuff, you know, they are desperately trying to shift towards more automation instead of employing tens or hundreds of thousands of human beings. Yeah. Oh, and you know what, too? Um, Ford is, uh, they're, they're getting into India pretty heavily with, with Tata, aren't they? Um, um, with Mahindra. They have a deal with Mahindra. Oh, Mahindra. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think that was also one of the things that I, I caught up on was um, Autoline, uh, one of the recent episodes. They they had someone from Ford on talking about that and how a, a Ford, Ford has kind of acknowledged like, Hey, you know what? Like we're not kind of not a car company anymore, but we're really good in, in light trucks and utilities. So that's, yeah. that's what we're going to focus on, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but also, you know, they partnering up with an Indian manufacturer and looking at how, uh, you know, logistics and supply chain and stuff are done in India versus how a you know a Western manufacturer does it, trying to understand like how could how do we not screw this up? It, they, it was interesting where they find common ground and where they they learn from each other. Um, but yeah, I mean India is such a big population too. Yeah, one point three billion people, and it's it's almost yeah, as big as as China. You could go there and convert people to customers and do do okay. Uh, it's it's it, you know it'll be fascinating to see. Um, See what happens with sort of global markets in the next decade, right? And you know, I mean, that's uh, you know, that's basically what Henry Ford did in the in the early twentieth century. You know, is you know, create the you know, transform the workers into customers. You know, by paying them more. 
Yeah, so they could buy the thing right. that they built. Exactly. Um, all right, well. Uh, <laughs> so, what, <laughs> Sorry for the what, tangent. what have you been driving, Dan? <laughs> I have um, a 2019 Jeep Wrangler Unlimited Rubicon. Ooh, um, the full off-road package. Yeah. God, I hate driving the Rubicon on the road. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the Wrangler, and the Unlimited is certainly the most pop. I think it's got to be the most popular Wrangler uh, model, just because of the, the four-door practicality. I, I see a lot more of those uh, than I, I see I think it is, yeah. It, it certainly is now. Um, and I'm, I'm much more of like a Wrangler Sahara kind of guy, or just the standard Wrangler, where because I'm spending my time with it on the road, and the Wrangler, by its very nature, is as refined as they've made it. The new JL is, is amazingly refined for, for compared to the JK. Uh, it, it's it's only going to get so good, and and the Rubicon undoes some of that on road good behavior because it has, you know, larger tires. It's a lift, lifted a little bit. It's, it's designed to be very capable off road, and by its very nature, that makes it crappy on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I found that the sweet spot for this one is like 60 to 65 miles an hour, and it's it's fine. But it feels very jeepy in that Wrangler kind of way. The classic Wrangler CJ sort of attitude is, is there. Uh, and the, what I like about this one the most is that this is my first time driving uh, one of the Wranglers with the turbo four-cylinder. What do you think and of it? And I love it. It's fantastic. It's I think it's the best Wrangler engine in... Uh, since, I don't know. Since, since the since old the AMC six-cylinder, yeah, yeah, and and so I've always liked four-cylinder Wranglers. I, I know that they don't go worth a shit. This one does because it's got a turbo. Right. But in the past, the four-cylinder Wrangler has just been like, yeah, you can't be in a hurry. Uh, <laughs> but it it always has. Yeah, but, sort it, but of in this those very... days, you know, rank, you know, or CJs, you know, as they were right. then. You know, were they were for the you know for the off-roaders. You know, it, it you didn't have. You know, regular people, so for lack of a better term, <laughs> you know, driving around in CJs. I mean, it, it just it just wasn't the, it. It was too much of a hardcore vehicle. You know, I mean, it it was what the you know the Rubicon is today. And you know, when you're running off road, you don't need a lot of power because you're usually not going very fast. Yeah, power is not often your friend in in those situations, and I think that's where the Turbo Four might be. A little bit of a challenge because it has non-linear torque delivery and it has a lot of low-end torque. It's it's it is very linear, but still the nature of a turbocharged engine is you sometimes you're going to get more than you asked for. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, in a Rubicon, when you put it in four-wheel drive low, I mean, I I tried this last summer at uh, FCA's What's New event at their Chelsea Proving Grounds. I took the Wrangler on the the off-road course that they have, and you know, you put it in four low. And, you know, in third gear at, you know, 4,000 RPM, you're going about eight or nine miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, you know. So, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you're doing all, yeah. you know, it, the, the linearity, you know, it makes no difference. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm sure that it's uh, just been designed to be phenomenal off-road. Um, but, you know, when I think about it, too, my... I, and it's it's not some sort of like historical precedence kind of thing because I I like progress as shocking as that may seem, but uh, the Jeep like with a four cylinder, that's a return to form. They all of those World War II Jeeps, the first Jeeps, they were all four cylinders. So 
They're either the Willys Go Devil or, you know, Ford Flathead 4. So uh, Jeeps are supposed to have a four-cylinder option, and this is a great one. It just, it has ready torque off the line. It's, uh, you know, light on its feet. It has plenty of, of power when you need it. Uh, you know, I don't really want a super fast Jeep. It would be entertaining to see what a Hellcat and a Wrangler would do, <laughs> but I, I don't think that's I'm not sure something entertaining you be... is necessarily the word I'd use. More like terrifying. Yeah, well, Especially I mean, in a some Rubicon. people... Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, I, I really like the character of it better than the Pentastar, which is a great engine, but the Pentastar likes to be revved to make its power where a Turbo 4 is a little torquier. So the, the character, I think, fits um, the Wrangler better. And the fuel economy is very good. I'm getting like 19 and a half combined, which is probably the best I've ever gotten from a Wrangler Unlimited um, that I've driven. They, they just like reliably don't get good fuel economy because of what they are. So I, I'm impressed with that. And it, it's just, it's nice uh, with the, the eight-speed auto. Um, you know, the, the Rubicon stuff... I understand it makes a lot of profit for <laughs> Chrysler. Um, and it, well, and, it does and for, pack- for a certain segment of customers, you know, it is absolutely the right vehicle, you know, for, yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, like my, my neighbor it has a, I think he's got a, um, it's a late nineties or mid, mid nineties Wrangler, um, which was probably like a, uh, it's a TJ TJ. Yeah. yeah. And you know, he, he's got it all, tricked out you know he he calls it behind his rv out to moab every year and takes it up north to the upper peninsula of michigan and you know goes you know really goes out you know on a serious off-road you know boulder crawling adventures with that thing and you know he does not drive that thing to work you know it's it's strictly it's strictly for play for him and that's the kind of customer that the rubicon is built for yeah and so you know what that's fine but you're also going to spend $53,000 to get that, one. That is very true. Like this. Um, and it's, it, I, this is not even a full boat Wrangler. Like I, I, I may be missing it, but I don't think I have heated seats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you probably, I think you probably are missing it. I think they are there. I, I, I will look again. <laughs> I, seem, I, I didn't I seem find to recall, them in the seem, control screen. I seem to recall the one I had last summer did have heated seats in it. Uh, but the switches are not necessarily the most obvious. Okay. I'll have to look around and see what I'm missing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's really hard to say anything uh, critical of the Wrangler because all of the criticism equals, like, the the retort is, well, that's, A, that's not what it's for, and B, that is how it's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> And I love that the JL is just, it's full of very thoughtful touches, nice touches everywhere. I noticed today that on the the door hinges, they say T50 on them, and that refers to the Torx screw to remove the doors. So it also comes with a little socket set in the glove compartment that has the Torx drivers. And, And when you do take the doors off and you take all those screws out, and the same with the roof, when you open the tailgate, molded into the the plastic trim at you know when you open the tailgate there's a whole bunch of holes you know and there's embossed markings on there with you know here's where the screws for the the door the right door 
right front door and the left front door and the right rear and the left rear and the roof panels go and they're all sized to fit you know so you put everything in there as you take those pieces off you drop the screws in there and then flip the carpet back over it and you're you're not going to lose them you're, you're going to know exactly where they are yeah and those are the things that uh, I think they're sort of called surprise and delight in some circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are the things that, you know, do make a difference. They make you feel uh, pleased with your investment, your $53,000 yeah. so, so have you been driving, the, driving this thing around with the doors off? Absolutely not. It's been in the teens. Okay. Um, I, the other thing I love about it is it has a uh, nuclear fusion-powered heater. <laughs> uh, it gets very, very toasty, which is lovely. That's, that's called the turbocharger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I really actually, I want it to snow uh, so I can uh, get out in it and um, try to drive it around in some crappy weather because that's, that's when I find that I, I love Wranglers the most. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're great in terrible conditions and their charm is, is undeniable. Yes. Uh, and I, I, I do think that the four-cylinder is probably, probably my favorite match uh, for powertrain in, in a very long time. I just, I, I really like the combination. I like the way it behaves. I, I do find that it's, it's a little loud and I know that's weird to call a Wrangler loud, but like from the outside, when you start it up and stuff, just the engine noise from the outside, it, it makes a bit of racket. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, and d- direct injected engines tend to do that. You know, the, those, those, uh, injectors, you know, they're running at very high pressures and, you know, they, you can, when, if you, you know, most cars with direct injected engines, you know, they've, those big plastic shields they put over the engine uh, on all all the new cars. You know, there's also some uh, sound deadening material on the underside of that. And when you take that off, you can you can really hear those things tapping. They sound almost like, you know, like an old school diesel in a lot of cases. Yeah. And, and on a cold start, you know, it's running a little high idle. Uh, so that makes it a little noisier, too. But once it settles down, it it's OK. And the exhaust note to me reminded me of the old dj5 uh male jeeps so i thought that was that was amusing um so yeah you know i can't i I can't not recommend the wrangler if the wrangler is what you want and if the rubicon is what you want like you you have money to burn um i hope you use it because you know for me the price is really just the biggest uh barrier and the wrangler has for a lot of years now not not been especially cheap Um, right although you know if you you know, if you forego some of the more luxury options that are available on there, uh, and you know, even I think even go for a soft top and go for a two door, you can get a two door Rubicon starting at thirty eight thousand dollars. That's still a lot of dough. It, it is, like, but I mean, you know, it's a lot less than fifty three thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, to me, a Wrangler should should be in the twenties, and and you can get one in the twenties. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, it won't be a Rubicon, but it'll still be pretty capable. Um, and, and yeah, uh, so that's just, just my, I guess my perception of what a Jeep should be. Uh, and, and I think too, if you're looking at the Wrangler Rubicon, there are other options. There's, you know, like the, um, the forerunner, uh, SR5 or limited is, is also very capable. Um, it's, it's an older vehicle, but it's, you know, an enclosed SUV. It's got more space than a, uh, Wrangler unlimited might actually even be a little shorter, um, or, uh, certainly it's wider, so it doesn't feel as, you know, the, the Wrangler Unlimited feels kind of like a bar, like a tuna boat or a barge yeah. just because it's, it's long and narrow. Um, so there, there are some choices and, you know, I don't think a forerunner 
SR5 is exactly cheap. No. Well, I mean, none of, none of these vehicles are anymore. Um, you know, and then don't forget, you know, Ford's got the new Bronco coming out, which is, you know, they're aiming that thing directly at the Wrangler as an alternative to the Wrangler. Um, so, and I think, you know, GM is reportedly also working on, uh, on something uh, probably from the GMC brand uh, that would be designed to take on the Wrangler as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the market gets a little saturated. You know, they can probably handle one, maybe two more competitors, but then it, it, interest is going to start to to drop off. So, or, or there just won't be enough total sales to really support any one of them. It'll just get diluted. Yeah. Across, so I, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, but yeah, I mean, the what I'd like to see is instead of the Rubicon, or in, in addition to the Rubicon, I'd like to see a Wrangler Unlimited Limited or Overland or something where it's, it's just much lo- more luxurious, <laughs> um, where they, you know, put some extra sound deadening in it, put those really nice Grand Cherokee, um, uh, summit seats in it and make it really cushy. Uh, you know, there's a, why not just buy a Grand Cherokee then? Well, because sometimes people like the sort of, you know, the, the rough and tumble appearance and reputation. People buy G wagons for kind of the same reason, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't. I don't know. I think there's an opportunity that Land Rover Discoveries. Yeah. So speaking of which, there's a new Discovery coming soon too. So. Yeah, and that's my product planning advice. They won't take it. They probably looked at it and realized. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that. I I would not be the least bit surprised if uh, if FCA comes out with a, a more luxurious trim level for the for the Wrangler at some point in the not too distant future. I'd be I'd be surprised. I'm sure that they've looked at it, and uh, you know, if they can make the numbers work, yes. But uh, maybe it's one of those things where just the numbers don't work, and the people who spend the big money on a Wrangler are looking for the stuff like the Rubicon versus the the luxury. But I, you know, I I will uh, watch enthusiastically from the sidelines because that's not my job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, we want to talk about some some topics, some Geneva. Yeah, well, let's 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 stay on uh, Jeep for a moment first and uh you know one of the uh the news items that came out of Geneva was uh some Jeep news. Uh you know Rebecca and I talked about the Alfa Romeo Tonali uh which is uh you know right now it's a, it's a concept but a production version is coming next year which is their new uh compact crossover uh to slot in below the Stelvio <clears throat> but the the Tonali shares its platform uh, with at least uh, the Renegade and Fiat 500X and possibly also the, uh, um, the Compass, Jeep Compass. And, uh, and at, in Geneva, uh, Jeep announced that uh, plug-in hybrid versions of the Renegade and Compass uh, will be coming to production next year. Uh, and you know, we already, Jeep had already previously announced uh, that there's going to be a plug-in hybrid version of the Wrangler next year. And so now there's going to be uh, the, the Compass and uh, Renegade as well. And presumably, you know, the, the 500X, I would guess, it at some point, too. Um, and, you know, it, based on, you know, they haven't given really full details of the hybrid uh, architecture. But based on what they've said, you know, it looks like this is, you know, essentially a similar kind of layout to what uh what volvo does on their plug-in hybrid so it's a, th- a through-the-road hybrid where the engine is powering the the front wheels and then you have an electric motor at the rears and you know this thing's going to have uh 30 miles 31 miles of electric range uh at speeds up to over 80 miles an hour in, in electric mode um and uh 
uh, as much as 240 horsepower. They're going to have a couple of different configurations, but up to 240 horsepower. Um, with uh, you know, so can you imagine a 240 horsepower Renegade? I'd be all set with that. Now the Renegade is not my. Fa- I don't like the Renegade. I think if if I were to do a Renegade, I'd just buy a Compass or a 500X. Yeah. But, no. Uh, I, yeah. I I agree. You know, I think that the Renegade's a little bit too rough and choppy in its ride quality. I, I you know when I drove. I drove both the Renegade and the uh, the 500X uh, a couple of years ago, and I did prefer the 500X. Um, I, yeah, and the Renegade is just it's a little too kitschy. It's it's trying too hard. But the 500X is just it's a 500 shaped vehicle, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just good, um, and it's kind of like quietly good. I don't I don't know that it gets enough of the attention. Over in the Fiat store, not that anything. Really uh, not, does nothing these much days. gets any attention in the Fiat store these days, which is that's, which I, is too bad because yeah. the I think the five hundred X is actually a, a pretty cool looking little vehicle. I do too. I think it's actually probably the best thing they have on offer. Yeah, in terms of what the American consumer needs. No, absolutely. Um, and and a you know a turbocharged two hundred forty horsepower version of that sign me up kind of yeah <laughs> uh, that sounds like a good time and I I think uh, well maybe maybe this is better posed as a question do you think that this is a move uh, to sort of quickly boost the fuel economy of the things that are selling because we know that that Jeep and Ram are basically carrying all of FCA right now so oh yeah no no doubt about that and. You know, certainly, uh, you know, for, you know, the ZEV states like California and, and other states, you know, they need to have uh, vehicles like this available because they, they you know, they're, the 500Es that they're selling now, that they're still selling now, you know, they're selling those at a huge loss. And so they need something that's going to be more commercially viable and that's going to be appealing to, you know, something that customers are going to be willing to pay more for than they're going to, you know, than they're willing to pay for a 500E. And then, you know, uh, they, especially these small Jeeps, you know, part of the reason why they debuted uh, the Renegade and the, uh, and the Compass uh, plug-in hybrids in Geneva is because they actually sell quite a few of these in Europe as well. And, you know, they diesel is rapidly uh, falling out of favor there. So they need to have, they need to have um, a plug-in hybrid option there in order to meet European emission standards. And, you know, the other thing that's, that's also new in this is um, a new 1.3 liter uh, turbo four cylinder. That's going to be the base engine in here uh, with the plug-in hybrid. And um, that's, I think it's a a one uh, in the 240 horsepower plug-in hybrid version that engine is 180 horsepower so what is that based off anything that they currently have is it like sort of the two liter that i was just talking about in the jeep just you know with a little bit less bore no i think i think i think it's a new engine um it may be derived you know it may share some architectural stuff with the current fiat 1.4 liter uh but it sounds like it's a pretty new engine they haven't given a lot of details on it yet uh but you know it's it's it you know when you that's too you know that's too small a displacement to go down you know from a two liter you know basically you know whenever anybody you know 1.5 to 1.6 liters is kind of the cutoff you know yeah. and so anything less than that you know is usually a small four cylinder family and then you know two liters and up you know is a larger four cylinder family. Yeah, so my I, that's true. I think if you're going to drop a half a liter off a four cylinder, off a two liter four cylinder, you're just you're going to make it a triple. Yeah, <laughs> which which is what a lot uh, of yeah, you know, that's what BMW does. That's uh, what Mercedes yeah. does, and and other companies do the same thing. So, 
it's curious to me that they that they already have a one point four that they develop a whole new engine to be you know, 100cc smaller. But I, there's reasons, I suppose. But the, Well, that's why I said, you know, they, they haven't given a lot of detail on it. So, we, you know, we don't, it may not be all new. It may be, uh, it may be based on, like, it may have the same bore spacing and deck height. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if it does as the 1.4 liter. Uh, yeah. You know, that way, you know, they can reuse a lot of the same tooling for machining the blocks and stuff like that. That's true. I guess if the expensive tooling stays... And the, uh, you know, you can change pretty much everything else around that. You can do a completely new cylinder head and manifolds and all that stuff. But <laughs> Right, and the, you, still have the the same, you still have the same mounting points, you know, for the engine in the, in the vehicle. And, you know, those, those mounting points, you know, are also used, you know, when you're machining the block, when it's going down a transfer line. You know, the transfer line is the, you know, the, the, one of the, the most expensive parts about doing engine production, you know, from the manufacturing side. And, you know, if you have those same location points for those blocks as they go down uh, and do the go through the machining processes and then through assembly, you know you save a lot of money you know on tooling that up. Yeah, you know that's been one of the more fascinating sides of the discussion about the the lower cost Tesla Model Three is just the the way you save money or the the way you you find those economies in car production. It's not necessarily taking stuff out of the car. It's it's you think about just the process of manufacturing. It's the, the tools that you have to create to put them together. It's the um, you know the, just the 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 differences. It costs you money to make them different. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of those things to, to streamline uh, the amount of of variations in the content and um, you know who's building those different things. So even the wheels like. Are you making the wheels? So you're going to have to come up with a whole steel wheel production line if you want to offer a low-cost steel wheel versus the alloys. Well, that, that's now you've got to spin that up. You're going to you're going to operate at a loss for a while. Uh, it's it's just that's that's really fascinating uh, to to dig into and and so just to sort of cover that here too. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, that's I mean, all. you know, man, man, manufacturing <laughs> engineers are you know the unsung heroes of this industry, you know, because without Without a good manufacturing engineering team, you know, through, throughout the entire process, you know, from body stamping to uh, machining and assembly and, and, and everything else, um, you know, none of the, you know, you could design the greatest car in the world, but if you can't put it together, you know, consistently uh, and, you know, at a relatively low cost and high quality, then, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So. That that's I, it's a fascinating little vehicle too. The the um, the Alpha is interesting because it pulls in a lot of cues from older Alphas. You know, other especially like older Alpha hatches and stuff. It just it really looks good. Um, yeah, it does. I, I I especially like the front end. You know, the the front end execution. You know, it reminds me a lot of the the previous uh, Alpha Romeo Brera coupe, uh, which. Uh, which wasn't available in North America, um, but should have been. Yeah, it was just tragic. Yeah, yeah. it reminds me of and, the and, and, too, the, and the one fifty nine, which was also a really, yeah. another really nice one. Yeah, and, and so that's 
do, do we think that because I'm starting to see more Julia's, which surprises me, but there's no like sort of volume alpha. Is this that what this is supposed to do is just be that compact crossover volume car that's, you know, the Stelvio we talked about and it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's it's a little larger. It's a more premium. Uh, I guess it's kind of like a midsize crossover. So th- this is sort of to be more of a bread and butter car. Yeah, this you know, this will be the the entry level alpha. You know, um, and certainly, certainly here in North America, you know, it'll probably be the highest volume uh, Alfa Romeo. And that's good that it shares a bunch of stuff with um, cheaper cars. Then, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's 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 very smart. The Alpha like story has been kind of a slow thing. Their return was supposed to be. Uh, I feel like it was supposed to be a lot quicker. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure, you know, six years ago, Sergio Marchionne felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess, too, like, if they were going to come back with sedans and then the market just kind of shifted under them and they, they said, oh, now we have to come up with um, uh, some some crossovers or we're not going to make it. Uh, I guess I guess that makes sense. Um, and, you know, the Compass is going to be great with a, a hybrid powertrain too. I think that's really, really smart for Jeep to make those offerings because those are the Jeeps that like, those are the entry Jeeps or those are the Jeeps that um, people in a more urban environment who either don't have the money or the space for a Grand Cherokee, definitely not for a Wrangler or don't want to put up with a Wrangler. You know, they want a Jeep, but they want something that is a little bit more conventional, a little bit more comfortable. Uh, That's the compass. The compass so impressed me in its its latest generation the way they changed that from just a kind of a crappy economy car into something that really is like a three-quarter scale grand cherokee it's it's really really nice uh it, to put a hybrid in that i think is is just a really smart move because i think that buyer is looking for economy and that that buyer might cross shop with a prius or, or something else but you know decide that hey i like the jeep i want the jeep style and I could get a plug-in hybrid with it. Uh, great, that's that's really smart. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, shall we move on? Yeah, I babbled enough about that. One. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, What's next? Uh, well, the Honda E prototype made its premiere um, in in uh, Geneva, which I didn't think that thing was ever going to actually come to. Pre- production well they, they announced cool. a while ago that they were going to produce it um there's you know there's yeah, a couple yeah. other variants of it that con- that they've shown as concepts that they said that they don't plan to produce but but well the, the the other thing the thing to keep in mind is that we're not going to see it here it's not coming to north america it's only for europe and japan yeah we get the, the forbidden hondas are always the best yeah. you know yeah i mean you know this is this is a small car um and you know it Certainly, you know, from Honda's perspective, it makes sense not to bother trying to sell it in North America because, it, you know, there's just no market for a car like this here. Um, oh, well, there's no, well, I, there's no volume market. Well, I, yeah, sorry. No, no, yeah, no, 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 not enough volume to justify, you know, going through the whole certification process for yeah, the U.S. market. Yeah, that's, that's true. But so, okay, so here's a question because it's an EV. So is it actually less expensive to certify an EV? Uh, for the U.S. market. So you could bring it in at a limited volume and say, you know what, we're only going to sell these in urban centers where traffic density is a problem and it's, you know, it's easier to park. It's it, it's not going to do you still, you still have to crash test it, you know, and that's a big part of the cost, you know, going through all the the the, the crash protection uh, testing. Is it 
is it that much different though than like the Euro NCAP um, it's, testing? It's it's different enough that you have to do everything. There, there's, there, you know, there, there's not none of the testing that you do for Euro NCAP is going to carry over to the U.S. testing. No, but I guess my my thought is like, you have to pay to test it, obviously, but uh, it'll pass if it passes your oh, NCAP. Yeah. it's a pretty good. Yeah it, it, yeah, it almost it almost certainly will. You know, and in general, manufacturers are, uh, you know, they're designing everything now to meet you know all the different global standards. You know, in Europe and and you in North America and in China, uh, and so you know, I I don't doubt that it would pass, but. You know, just the cost of going through that process to certify it for North America uh, is, and you know, particularly because you know, because it's a small car, it, you know, it has a relatively small battery. It's only got a 120 mile range, which means yeah, that true. it's probably not going to be competitive in the U.S. market. You know, in Europe, you know, where things are closer together, you know, a lot of people that that do drive, you know, tend to drive more locally. You know, they, you know, there's there's often you know city cars are more much more popular in europe than they are here um because you know there's there's a lot of drivers that you know don't necessarily do a lot of highway driving uh with these types of vehicles and you know so it it makes sense it makes more sense in that market here its range is going to be too short to really be competitive in this marketplace and you know you're not going to be able to get um I don't think you're going to be able to attract enough customers that are going to want a car like this in this in the U.S. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I, I, you know, some of it is is down to customer preference too. Like, I don't know too many people who drive 120 miles a day. I know that I guess that's not outrageous, especially in um, certain areas of the country where the, the roads are. Uh, sort of flat and straight. Uh, it's not uncommon to do a sixty-mile one-way commute, and and so your round trip is one twenty. I mean, I do forty-five, so my round trip every day is ninety. So it's, it's not not that different, I suppose. Yeah, and you know um, when you factor in you know some of the uh, things like weather conditions and and other stuff, you know that right. is going to knock down your your range. Then it, it you know it's going to start to have a uh, have a significant impact. Yeah, that 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 is true. Um, but I, I do think that in the U.S., battery capacity is sort of like the new engine size. <laughs> like, uh, and we, we probably buy more than we need because it, it, you know, just like having a lot of horsepower underfoot is sometimes a comfort. Um, I think having double or, or even more of the range you're going to use at any one sitting is, is also a comfort. And especially with, with EVs where sometimes the, the range is unpredictable. It's not guaranteed that you're going to get it depending on, you know, ambient temp and, and other factors so yeah that it's too bad we're not going to get it though i was trying to hold on to a glimmer of hope you know <laughs> like oh if, if they don't have to certify the engines for emissions but you know what that that money probably gets burned up because it's more expensive to make an ev anyway you got to pay for the batteries and stuff yeah well and that's you know i think that's part of why i think this this vehicle would struggle in the u.s market you know because honda would basically have to sell it at a loss and it's just not really worth it for them yeah, it would be worth it for me <laughs> to see it here because it's just I had just I don't know small cars are neat and oh uh, I I don't disagree I love small cars yeah it's 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 really you know so what we can glean from it though is like maybe that interior with the screens across is going to be something that we see 
in uh, newer Hondas uh, that are that are coming. Oh yeah, or, we'll you know we'll what? definitely see stuff like that coming to Hondas in this market. Yeah, and I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it it I, I love the ergonomics of it. I love the this. Er, well, I love the 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 sort of like. I guess design of it, not the ergonomics. The ergonomics give me pause because it it's touch screen, um, but I, I just love the sort of rectilinear design, the way it stretches out in front of the driver, and and it's not real swoopy. Um, but yeah, it 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 does look like we're still continuing to have car UI that's like buttons that are too small to touch uh, while you're driving down the road, hitting bumps and stuff. So yeah, I don't, we'll see what they do with it. Yeah. Uh, it- Hopefully we'll get a chance to at least sample it at some point, but probably not. <laughs> They'll fly you somewhere. You, right. you can go see. All that. right. So uh, why don't we finish off? Uh, let's see with some talk about Tesla's updated superchargers. Oh, um, yeah. So it's basically are they calling it the supercharging version three? Yes. And it's a two hundred and fifty kilowatt fast charger. Uh, where you're not sharing the charging capacity with any up any to 250 kilowatts, okay. up to yeah, um, and so they're saying that it can put 100 miles of range back in the battery in six minutes, and you know their their Twitter was saying like yes, it charges at a thousand miles per hour, which seems ridiculous to me because the battery well, doesn't if, hold if, a thousand if, miles. If, if you could if you could continuously charge it at that maximum rate, you know, all the way until it was full. And you had that much capacity, you could put in a thousand miles in an hour. Well, okay, so that's nonsense on a few different levels. If you could continuously charge it at that rate and put that much energy into the battery, you'd have a fire. Exactly, which is why <laughs> they don't continuously charge it. You know, I mean, and this this applies to every charging system for every electric vehicle. You know, as you get beyond about seventy-five to eighty percent state of charge, you know, if you if you take an EV to any DC fast charging station or even a even a, a level two charging station, a 240-volt charging station, and watch the, the power output, you know, once you get to about 75-80%, you will see it start to decline very dramatically as, as you approach full because you don't want the battery overheating and you don't want it overcharging, you know, both of which can cause significant damage to the, to the internals of the battery and, and degrade its lifespan. And, yeah. And so, you know, the, certainly, you know, having, you know, faster available charge rate is, you know, is definitely going to be a lot more convenient. And I think one of the, one of the important things that, that Tesla is doing is something that hasn't really gotten talked a whole lot about with their existing superchargers. You know, um, the current superchargers are capable of charging at 120 kilowatts, but only if there's only one car plugged into it. Each supercharger, you know, actually has two cords on it. And so you can plug in two cars at once, but each of those current superchargers is only capable of 120 kilowatts. You plug in two cars, they each get 60 kilowatts, not 120. So that's, I guess, the difference with the V3 is that they've added basically 100,000 watt capacity, so a a megawatt power. Yeah, they put a new power control panel in for the station. Um, And the the chargers themselves have been redesigned so that, you know, essentially now you're getting, you're going to get up to 500 kilowatts pumped into each one of those chargers. 
so you can have 250 kilowatts per per vehicle that's connected to it. Uh, you know, and that you know that will definitely make charging more, hopefully, more consistent for customers. Because you know, especially in recent months, as you know, you've had more and more Model Threes out on the road, and you know the the number of Teslas in use has has climbed. You know, customers using superchargers have been complaining. You know, well, first of all, they've been complaining about long lines at the supercharger stations at a lot of the more popular cha- stations. Um, because they're all in use, and you know, so you have to sit around waiting. And you know, unlike the line at a gas station, you know, where it, you know, each car, you know, is in and out in you know five or six minutes. Uh, you know, these cars may be plugged in for thirty minutes to an hour to get a full charge. Um, so you know, the the wait times can be pretty long at a lot of supercharger stations. And then when you do get plugged in, you're not getting the full charge if everybody's using them at once. And sometimes, even if not all the chargers are in use at once, you still don't get a full charge. Uh, Henry Payne, uh, he's the autos critic for the Detroit News, actually published a story the other day. Um, he has a Model 3 that he bought last October. And one of the things that he talked about in there, aside from you know, um, having to wait many, many weeks to get a, uh, a sensor replaced on his car, um, was you know, he drove across Michigan uh, for a trip. And, you know, had to stop at a supercharger station. And there was, you know, when he got there, there was nobody else around. And, you know, it was not charging at anywhere near 120 kilowatts. You know, it was more more like about 40 kilowatts. Uh, and, you know, I mean, this is something that, you know, apparently happens quite regularly at supercharger stations. And it's not clear why, uh, you know, it may have something to do with um, Tesla, uh limiting the uh the power you know at some stations you know if they're if you know if it's costing them too much in demand charges uh so you know and you know this is something that can happen to to any charging station you know i mean there's a a wide variety of things that could limit the the output but um you know hopefully you know when they start rolling these out right now they've got one beta version three station in the bay area uh and then they plan to start rolling out more you know later in the year uh as they as they get it verified and then they're also doing some software over the air software updates to all the cars to enable even all the cars that are currently in use uh with existing superchargers to bump that from 120 to 145 kilowatt charge rate okay so i mean honestly it, it one of the best things that tesla has done is the supercharging stations you know they they have this design where it's very much like a fuel station so there's multiple chargers they're usually in the same kind of area that a uh, gas station is going to be if you are trying to charge an electric car and you're not on the supercharger network it's actually a lot harder you know there's a lot of um Chargers are are listed that you know they're sometimes they're behind locked gates. You can't find them. They're at dealerships or, or in you know parking garages where you have to go and pay to get in, and then you have to pay to use the charger. And yeah, it's it's it can be a real hassle. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of times you know to charge other vehicles, and yeah, that's absolutely one of the things that that Tesla has done right. And I think you know the some of the rest of the industry is starting to learn from that. You know, and certainly Electrify America. You know, VW's uh, charging network has learned learned that lesson, and they're doing very similar kind of deployment to what Tesla has done. 
Well, and, you know, I wonder, I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody else has wondered about this too, but like, there's a business alone in being that charging infrastructure provider nationwide, you know, very much like there, the, uh, there, gas stations. There, yeah, there, <laughs> there is a potential business there. Um, you know, so far it has not been a profitable business for anybody because, you know, companies like EVgo and ChargePoint and Blink, you know, built up some pretty big networks of charging stations but there haven't been nearly as many EVs sold as were projected, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago when they started building out these networks. And so a lot of these chargers are vastly underutilized uh, right now. And so, you know, they're, they're you know, the, all these companies are, have still been losing quite a bit of money. You know, the hope is that now as we start to get a whole bunch more EVs coming to market and, and more affordable EVs, that you know these these stations will start to get a lot more use, and then you know they can really start to expand the networks. Yeah, well, I think too, uh, customers, EV customers, have to become accustomed to paying for energy once again, because right now they're not really. It's not like the same as a, a gasoline transaction, um, where you pay for the gallons that you put in the tank. Well, for for, D, for DC fast charging, they, you know, you usually do a lot of the the two forty volt chargers. You know, are located at various businesses like you know grocery stores and things like that, where they actually pay for the charger and and you know provide you know the charging for free. Um, but you know, a lot of the chargers you do actually have to pay for it. All right, I, that but, always but seems price, to me that but the, the price is a lot cheaper than gasoline. Well, there's that, and there's always – anytime I talk to somebody about EVs, they always say, well, I can charge it for free. You know, I'm not paying for gas. I'm like, yeah, no, but you're paying for electricity. Yeah, like, I mean, unless you've got solar panels <laughs> on your house, you're, you're, you're still paying to charge it. Yeah. But, you um, know, but even that, that price is a lot lower, a lot cheaper than gas. It is, but I think if, if you're going to provide charging infrastructure and set up stations, with, you know, like a gas station – you're gonna you're gonna tack on your your cost to that, and so it's not gonna be cents per kilowatt. It'll be dollars or what? However, you want to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It, it'll get sorted out, but in the meantime, Tesla has to actually come up with the capital to roll it out too. Like so, they're, they're piloting it. Um, other parts of the business don't quite look as as robust. Uh, yes, <laughs> shall to put we it say? Um, and I don't want to get into it, but it seems like this may not actually happen widely depending on what goes on with Tesla. Is that accurate or am I just being my normal cheery self? No, it's, it's a, it's a reasonable statement, you know, depending on what, what happens, <laughs> uh, you know, in the, in the next couple of months, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that, um, you know, Tesla may not be in a position to actually deploy any version three superchargers. Yeah. I mean, that would be too bad, but somebody will at some point. And it also, it's going to beat up the batteries too, right? So they uh, they may have more warranty claims. Right. And, you know, that's what Electrify America is doing. I mean, you know, their stations, you know, all of their their chargers will have a minimum 150 kilowatts. And then, you know, they will have some 350 kilowatt chargers at each of their locations. And their charger design is designed to be upgradable so that, you know, over time, if demand grows for more 350 kilowatt charging if there's more vehicles that support that you know they can go back and up, upgrade those chargers to support 350 kilowatts yeah i you know we're gonna have there's it's gonna be a great time uh watching the grid adapt to any surging demand for electric vehicles yeah 
Hey, we're just throwing around, you know, yeah, 350 kilowatts. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, for overall, you know, there's actually more than enough capacity to handle, you know, lots and lots of EVs. You know, the, the problem is, you know, the the distribution of it, you know, how many how many are actually trying to charge at one time? You know, if the if the the charging is spread out over the course of a day, you know, and done, you know, at off peak times, you know, there's more than enough capacity. Um, it's just a matter of managing the the charging. Yeah. Well, I it's a but it's a positive note for Tesla. I, th- I think that's great. Yeah. You can it makes the cars more usable, and uh, the the more that they do, the the more adoption we're going to see, and the, the better it's going to be. So absolutely. That's all I have to say about that. All right. Well, let's <laughs> let's call it a show with that. And uh, this has been episode 100. Uh, we'll be back next week with episode 101. Um, you know. It's, it's going to be all three of us in the same podcast. That time, yeah. Right? All, in like, fact, even yeah. in the same. Uh, well, actually, I won't be in the same. Uh, I may be in the same time zone. Depends what day of the week we do it next week. Okay. Uh, well, right, actually, next, we, week, next we week I will be in Eastern time. The week after, I'll, I'll be traveling. Okay. Well, we, we may actually do it all in the same room at uh, New York if we can make that happen. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Uh, I'm probably the, the like, <laughs> the, 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 the eccentric yeah. to that one. <laughs> We're working so on it. So we'll see. We're working on it. Yeah. All right. Um, so, all right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. And uh, talk to you next time. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.